Good morning to you. If I asked you to name the biblical festival Jews were to commemorate every year on the 14th of the month, if I said this festival commemorated how God saved the Jews from the hand of a powerful pagan ruler when they were outside of the promised land, if I said in this story there was a providentially placed saint put in the very palace of pagan royalty and whose initial call from God to rescue was met with reluctance on that person's part. And if I asked you to name that festival, you would probably, especially if we did this without any context having gone through our series, I think most Christians would pick Passover. Uh, That commemorates when God rescued the Jews from Pharaoh and his clutches. God providentially placed baby Moses, if you remember, inside Pharaoh's own palace. Uh, God called Pharaoh into service, but he said, I am slow in speech, send someone else. And that's how Aaron became the high priest. And and so, if, if, if I told you that information, you'd be correct in saying the Passover. But if I said, well, everything I said above is true, except this festival isn't on the 14th of the first month of the Jewish calendar, it's on the 14th of the last month. Well, that wouldn't be the Passover then. So what would you pick? Uh, what if I said, well, well, in this uh, celebration, this is not celebrated with a somber Seder, but with raucous jubilation. Uh, children dress up in character. Costumes are so important to this festival that the shops in Israel sell out months in advance for this particular festival so the children can wear their costumes. Uh, when the biblical story is read out loud, children shake a loud rattle, and they boo, and they hiss, and they... Stamp their feet so you can't hear the name of the villain when his name is read in the biblical story. Uh, instead of a, 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 that, a ceremonial meal of, of bitter herbs and an egg like you have at the Seder, there's a, a, a tasty tri-cornered pastry and it's supposed to either represent the, the villain's hat or maybe his ears, depending on who you ask. Um, then there's this dumpling soup you have. And uh, the meat is hidden around the dumpling in the soup, signifying how God is hiding behind the scenes in the story. But that meat is present right there, and you can't get around it. Now, chances are, if you've been in church for a long while, you have no idea what festival this is. And uh, perhaps the reason for that is, I think in the Talmud it talks about how um, uh, raucously the wine should be flowing when you celebrate, and maybe that didn't work out in Sunday school, so they skipped over that. I don't know. But, but what I'm talking about is the festival of Purim. You see, Passover, first month, 14th, Purim, last month, 14th, are the bookends of the Hebrew calendar. On the 14th of the first month, God's people celebrate their deliverance before receiving the promised land. And on the 14th of the last month, They commemorate their deliverance from the disobedience that came when they were outside of the promised land. The festival of Purim is interesting. It is the only festival in the Bible that is not mosaically given. So booths and tabernacles and Pentecost and Passover, all given by Moses. But this festival is only found in one place in the Bible. It's found in the book of Esther. And it is a festival that Jews the world over still commemorate to this day. And if that is news for you, then I would like for you to turn in the Bible 
to this festival. Turn with me to Esther chapter 8. We'll be reading chapters 8, 9, and 10 and closing out the story. We have one more sermon next week where we're going to look at some other things throughout the book, but we're going to close out the story today. If you can't find the book of Esther, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of our Blue Pew Bibles, page 525 will probably help you find the book of Esther. As we turn the word of the Lord, let's turn to that Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning admitting that for most of us, if we had to say, tell us everything you know about Purim, about three sentences later, we would be done. And yet, your people celebrate this with a joy and an enthusiasm that uh, we miss, we don't understand. And you've been taking us through the book of Esther, and it seems as though you've blown the, the smoke of obfuscation out of the room, and things are becoming much more clear, and we can see your, your providence working in the hands of wickedness, working amongst people who are fallible and compromising, and yet you give them a moment for such a time as this where they choose, where will I stand? Will I stand with God, or will I stand for my own comfort, convenience, and security? Lord, You've worked powerful things in this story. I pray that as we close it out today that Your Word would go forth with power, that we would get our arms around Purim, we would get our arms around what You would want us to do with these truths. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Word of God says in Esther chapter 8, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So big reversal of events. Mordecai is put in the place that Haman had. Haman had all the uh, power in the story up till now. It was last chapter that he fell apart and he was hung on his own gallows. And, and Mordecai, who had been faithful, who had prevented a palace coup, who was kind of forgotten and left as a low-level magistrate sitting over at the king's gate, well, that's all sorted out. Uh, Esther, who never told anybody she was Jewish, has now revealed her Jewish identity. Esther, who never told anybody that that was her cousin and her father figure, has now reveal that. So big reveals have happened. And then there's a big change. Chapter, verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring. That's his royal official uh, symbol and seal that had the power of the king. He took it off and he gave it not from Haman. Haman's dead. He gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So, so now all that Haman had, and he was like the number two person in this vast empire, has fallen to Mordecai. So things have gone really well for Esther and Mordecai personally. Verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out his golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. So again, Esther is bold. She goes before the king uninvited again. Her skin is already saved. Her house is already established. Her father figure has been elevated. Her life is good, but all of her people are still going to be extinguished. Because what's one thing you need to remember about the law of the Medes and the Persians? It's unalterable. He made an edict way back when, when Haman was sitting at his right hand saying that all the Jews were to be killed on a certain day, or at least attacked, and whoever was killed, it was not illegal. And so when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, indicating, yes, you can have an audience with the king, Esther rose and she stood before the king, and she said, if it pleases the king, and if I had found favor in his sight, and this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman the Agite, the son of Hamaditha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. 
For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? She didn't say it was good enough that I have it good, that everything's fine with me. She wants to see the kingdom of God advancing and the people of God saved. Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on his gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, the seal with it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So write something to fix this. I can't revoke it, and I'm too lazy to deal with it myself. We'll come back to that later. The king's scribes were summoned. So all the official business is happening here in verse 9. In the third month, which is the month of Sivian, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to satraps and governors and officials in the provinces from India to Ethiopia, that's basically Sudan to Pakistan in today's map, in the 127 provinces of this massive world empire. To each province in its own script, to its own people, in its own language. So everybody could read it in their own heart language, not just the official royal language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and then he sent letters by mounted couriers on swift horses that were used in the king's service. They were bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every single city in the empire, to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout the provinces, King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and a copy that was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies." So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, and they rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews, and a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The end, and Cinderella lived happily ever after. No, there's another chapter, because the Bible tells the truth. There's still a day when all the enemies of God are still allowed to attack, the same day that the people of God are now allowed to defend. The battle doesn't go away just because God is in the story. Chapter 9, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. You might want to circle that little phrase. The reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces, King Ahasuerus, to lay hands on those who sought to slaughter and harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. They saw which way the wind was now blowing. It was blowing away from wicked Haman's genocide and blowing towards the queen and Mordecai, and they wanted no part in the slaughter of these Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. 
For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful, and the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also in uh, a hard-to-pronounce place, and two other places, and some other hard-to-pronounce places. Verse 10, and then 10 of the sons of Hammon were killed, the enemy of the Jews. Now here's a pertinent verse but they laid no hand on the plunder. Circle that. They laid no hand on the plunder. In that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? And it shall be fulfilled. Meaning, the people that attacked you in my citadel, they have been killed. 500 of them have been killed when they tried to attack. And Esther said, look, if it be please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed one more day to sort this out. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king's command to do this was done. And a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 in Susa. So still another 300 people were willing to attack, and they died. But they laid no hands on their plunder, underline that. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid... No hands on the plunder. Underline that. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day they rested and they made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and a day in which they send gifts and food to one another. And Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts for the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamaditha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur. What's pur? That is lots. Purim is the feast of casting lots. Randomness, right? You randomly throw dice, you cast lots, and it's a random outcome. Purim to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan and that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on those gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim. Random. But it wasn't random, was it? It was sovereign. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they faced in the matter, and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. It's why it's such a big deal in Israel. It's why all those costumes sell out months in advance. 
in every clan, in every province, in every city, and that in the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihal, the, and Mordecai the Jew gave a full written authority conforming this second letter about Purim. And letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed and that their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Now here's the very last little chapter. Ready? King Ahasuerus, chapter 10, verse 1, imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. All right, so after Haman's comeuppance in chapter 7, when everything falls apart for Haman, chapter 8 is the aftermath and the total reversal of position for the Jews generally, and Mordecai specifically. Haman has gone from being top dog to a dead duck in our last chapter, from being uh, uh, up and coming to done in and down out. Uh, instead of Haman perched next to the king, it's Mordecai who is next to the king. Mordecai used to be left out at the king's gate. Now he's next to the king's seat. Instead of Haman having the king's signet ring, which was the royal seal, which gave the possessor great power in the empire, it is now put onto Mordecai, the Jew's finger. Instead of Esther hiding her Judaism, it is now out in the open. Instead of Esther and Mordecai keeping their family connections secret, verse 2 tells us Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told the king what Mordecai was to her. This is my cousin who has raised me like his own daughter. And instead of Mordecai wearing sackcloth and ashes as we saw earlier in the story when things were falling apart, verse 15 tells us Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Uh, instead of the city of Susa being thrown into confusion when the original edict from Haman for the genocide came out, the Bible tells us that uh, in chapter 8 and verse 15 that the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Do you see? Huge change. Huge change. Instead of mourning and weeping and fasting like we saw before, the Bible says in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews and a feast and a holiday. Now, chapter 9 summarizes this reversal very succinctly. This is what it says. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, when it looked like Satan's plan was fully in motion and the lights were out and you had two strikes and it's the ninth inning and that's it, baby, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. What was absolutely unbelievable became undeniable. The reverse occurred and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And that is the ark of which the festival of Purim rests. 
There are some details in this story we need to tease out. When chapter 8 opens, Esther is, is safe, and so is Mordecai. Mordecai is her guardian. Mordecai is her cousin, a father figure. But, but her people, the Jews, were in mortal and grave peril. Why? Because the earlier edict was still out there, and the king cannot revoke it because of the law of the Medes and Persians. Haman found his own hangman, but Ahasuerus' earlier edict of genocide was still in effect. The law of the Medes and Persians is unalterable. An empire-wide edict had gone out many months ago, and there was a day of open season about to happen on the Jewish people, and it was going to extend all the way from Ethiopia uh, to India. Daniel 6.8, speaking about the law of the Medes and the Persians, says, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign a document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. In our story, Esther 8.8 says the very same thing. But you may write as you please regarding the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. So we have a problem. Ahasuerus has spared the life of his queen, spared the life of the queen's cousin, uh, the cousin who previously demonstrated loyalty in, in revealing a palace coup, and all of that is good. But here's what's not good. All the Jews are going to die anyway. Those two people are safe, they're sound, they're rich, they're powerful, but God's people are going to perish. Now you need to remember something about Ahasuerus. What was Ahasuerus' Greek name? That's what the Hebrews called him as Ahasuerus. But we know him in history as Xerxes. Right? And Xerxes was not at all like his two accommodating predecessors. Okay? The, the accommodating predecessors said, oh, well, I'll release all the Jews. Oh, I'll let uh, Ezra go back too and take Jews. Those were the previous leaders. That's not Xerxes. Xerxes in history uh, was not a magnanimous religious accommodator. Xerxes actively promoted the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism. In fact, he ruthlessly uh, uh, reversed the practice of religious toleration. Uh, he destroyed the idols of Bel Marduk and the temple of Marduk and the temple of Asaglia and many other of the great Mardukian temples. He tore them down. He wasn't a man to accommodate on religion. He was a man to make the empire unified under what he believed. And so it was a pretty big thing for Esther to go again and risk her life again to save the Jews on religious grounds. So given Ahasuerus' acute historical religious intolerance, we again see a very selfless Esther approach her powerful but fickle husband for a recension of his earlier edict. Now Esther has everything that money can buy. She is the queen of the most powerful nation on earth, and she's going to put it all at risk to be on God's side. She's going to put everything she has, her title, her position, her very life, so that people would not perish. Oh, that the modern church would be so willing to give up of its comforts and its convenience and its security that people would not perish. Amen? The Bible tells us in verse 3, Esther fell at His feet and wept and pled with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. She wept and she pled and she fell at the feet of the king. Oh, that we might fall at the feet of King Jesus, weeping and pleading for the perishing. How different our churches might be. 
How different our community might, how different our country might be if we wept and we pleaded at the feet of the king for the perishing. You remember when we used to do that? It's been a while. Bravely, Esther reaches out to Ahasuerus again. Look at chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had given to Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. But then she risked it all. Then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agite, the son of Hamaditha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Here's the problem. Even the king can't renounce his former edict because of the unbreakable law of the Medes and the Persians. So you need another solution. Since the king can't rescind his edict, he can have a new edict written that more or less counterbalances, nullifies, that the second uh, sort of is, is, is removing the first as it will. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please regarding the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now in the original Hebrew, the word you is emphatic. It, it just jumps out at you. It's, it's put in such a way that it's allowed. So let me reread that. But you may write as you please. What's he saying? You fix this. You fix this. Apparently Ahasuerus does not want to think through the tedious details of getting out of this problem. His big mouth got him into the problem, and he doesn't want to be concerned with how to get out of it. So Ahasuerus is very keen to let other people think and act on his behalf. How did he get in this problem? He let Haman tell him to write the edict. He's always busy enjoying the comforts of his job, not usually doing the hard part of his job. You know what? To delegate is great, but it seems more like he has a predilection to dereliction than some kind of efficient management strategy. And it gets him in trouble. I want you to notice that uh, when wicked Haman had uh, Ahasuerus' signet ring, that ring carried the power of death. But when God put it on Mordecai's finger, guess what? It had the power of life. Hmm. And that's the thing with, with influence and affluence. They're just tools. In the wrong hands. They're abusive and oppressive. But if you put tools like influence and affluence in the hands of a person who loves God, they become edifying. So the question is, people of God, what has God put in your hands? What tool do you have of influence and affluence and how are you leveraging it for God? And not just for yourself. She, she already had everything she needed and she risked everything she had for the perishing. 
Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivian, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written. And about two months and ten days after Haman's hateful edict of satanic genocide, God raises up Mordecai, and, and he has him nullify the first edict. Now, now notice what he writes. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivian, the 23rd day, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, all 127 provinces. And to each province in its own script and to its, each, its own people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and then he sealed it with the king's signet ring and then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force or any people or any province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder the goods on one day throughout all the provinces. And so then the king's couriers went out and they told that order everywhere. So... What is the edict? The edict is the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. I want you to notice that this was defensive in nature. It was not offensive in nature. Haman's is offensive. Go kill everybody and take their stuff. The Jews are, go defend your people. That's it. Defensive versus offensive. Look at verse 11. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them. Totally defensive edict, Mordecai writes. So it was a defensive edict. Now, in our ESV Bible, you're going to run into a Hebrew problem. So the ESV translates verse 11 like the Jews were going to go out and kill women and children, doesn't it? Seems that way in the ESV. It's probably not what's actually happening. Uh, the, the, the grammar here is a little bit unclear uh, in this area. Uh, you're going to see that uh, uh, that is something that is uh, less than clear in the NIV in a moment. Mordecai writes this edict, and the king endorses this edict, saying, yes, you can go and uh, you can defend your lives, you can kill, destroy, and annihilate any armed force or people, children and women included, and plunder their goods. What you're going to notice is Mordecai's edict is more or less a word-for-word renunciation of the previous edict. In order to nullify the law, you have to write a law that cancels it out. So let's go back and listen for a second to what Haman wrote. It's in chapter 3 and verse 12. And you're going to understand the wording of why, Haman, uh, why Mordecai writes what he writes in our chapter. Flip back to chapter 3 and verse 12, and we'll hear evil Haman's wicked offensive strategy of genocide. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month in an edict. According to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors and all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus. It was sealed with his signet ring. And letters were sent by couriers to all the provinces with instructions to what? To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day in the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So what is Mordecai doing? Mordecai is just making sure he's utterly reversed Haman's wicked order. Now, the Jews, were they authorized to kill women and children? 
of their attackers. That's certainly the way it seems to read in the ESV. But listen to how the NIV translates it, because in the Hebrew, it's not really clear where this clause is falling. And so the NIV translators translate it like this. Verse 11 reads like this in the NIV. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. Do you see the defensive nature? Now, here's the deal. And that Hebrew is unclear. Is it, can they attack women and children or are they protecting their women and children? The, the, the Hebrew is unclear, but the rest of the context of the Bible is very clear. If you look at who actually dies, you see that they're not running around killing women and children. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 12, uh, it says, And the king said to Queen Esther in chapter 9, Chapter 9, verse 12, and then again in chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 what? Men. How many women and children? None. 500 men. Verse 15, the next day when there's a second battle in Susa, and the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men. How many women and children? This is defensive. This is only defensive. In both verses, the Hebrew word is, is, is ish. It carries the exclusive idea of an adult male. 300 adult males. Not a female. Not a child. I want you to remember that the king had ordered that the Jews could gather and defend themselves to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them. Hey, guess what? In the ancient world, women and children didn't comprise an, an armed force. Well, you go, well, wait a minute, I thought Haman's ten sons were killed. Well, that's a little separate from this edict, but you also need to understand that they were impaled on a pole, and they were probably all of military age. And if they didn't kill them off, do you remember what David did when he, it was the end of his life? And he turned to his son Solomon, who was taking over, and here's David, who's like, you know, writing all this poetry about how God is forgiving, and all, and then he goes, kill this guy, and this guy, and this guy, and then he dies. You're like, whoa, what's going on? David understood the problem when you leave problems to sit and a new leader emerges then those problems come up and they attack that new leader and so David said I want you to kill this guy and this guy and this guy to Solomon who is the new king so those problems didn't cause problems in the new kingdom and so similarly God moves Esther and Mordecai to get rid of Haman's sons because they are going to what they're going to spend their life trying to find a way to kill the Jews so they had to be extinguished okay so, there's sort of a lesson to the people to quell future insurrections. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say, thou shall not kill? Don't the 300 lives lost in Susa on the one day, and the 75,000 lost throughout the empire, and, and the 300 and 500 uh, in those other days, that seems like killing. But you know what, friends? You, the Bible doesn't say, thou shall not kill. Did you know that? Not in the Hebrew. The Bible doesn't say thou shall not kill. The Bible says thou shall not murder. Murder. Murder is the taking of innocent life. The Bible does not say thou shall not kill. The taking of guilty life is something that the Bible permits at times. Um, do you know that God permits capital punishment? In the Old Testament, He allows it. In the New Testament, it says the same. You know, that, that, that royal law of love, that same New Testament says Caesar does not bear the the sword in vain. It's about capital punishment. Now, do we always do capital punishment right in the 21st century? No. Uh, there's too long of a delay. Sometimes we sentence the guilty. But the idea that capital punishment is unbiblical is untenable, according to God in both Testaments. Hmm. 
So the taking of life is not necessarily forbidden. It's the murder of the innocent that's forbidden. Did you know that God permits just war? There are times in the Scriptures where God calls His people to go to war. And that's the taking of life, in case you didn't know what war is. He ordered it against the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hivites and a number of other peoples. God is against the murder of the innocent. Now, who are the people slain in our story? Who are the 300, the 500 in Susa, the 7,500 in the empire? Well, friend, are they innocent? No. They're a homicidal, genocidal group of bloodthirsty cutthroats. They're given the green light you can kill today, and they've been waiting eight months for the opportunity. Now, some of these men went to murder for the plunder. Some of these men went to murder probably for the sport. Some of these men went to murder because of their intense hatred of God's people. But they went, not innocently, to kill men, women, and children if they could get away with it. How many people cried deeply when the Nazi stormtroopers were defeated? Or did we just say, thank God those people aren't around? How many of you just wept when John Wayne Gacy was executed justly for his many crimes? We didn't. You know why? Because justice happened. And wicked things were removed who refused to repent. I want you to see that Ahasuerus' edict isn't murder. It's self-defense and justice rolled into one decree. Notice that though Haman wanted to enrich himself, he specifically said, go kill the Jews and you can take their stuff. And the Jews were allowed to do that because this was a reverse of the edict. But you know what the Bible tells us? Three times the Bible tells us this. In chapter 9 and verse 10, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now skip down to verse 15. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and 300 men were killed in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And finally, when we look at verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, and they laid no hands on the plunder. Friends, when Haman had a hand in it, the edict was a satanic economic genocidal gambit, wasn't it? But when Mordecai writes the monograph, it was written for protection, not predation. And no Jew received even a single cent from this edict. This radical reversal of events gives us the festival of Purim today, which reminds us, even though we're not particularly godly, God keeps His promises to us. Were Mordecai and Esther super godly? No, they were compromisers left, right, and center most of their lives. They, they didn't have the faith to follow God in the first return. Their parents didn't, or grandparents. And, and then when there was another return under Ezra 15 years ago, they didn't go then. And, and then they, they made all... But God still protected His people. Here's a book where the name of God doesn't appear once in its pages. And yet the fingerprints of God are seen on every page in the spite of Satan's great movements. Where does the festival of Purim get its name? Well, it's from the Persian word for lot. The lot Haman cast to decide which month he'd kill everybody. Now the Bible says the lot is cast into the lap, but the outcome is the Lord's. The things that are random still fit under the sovereignty of God. And it's kind of ironic that the Jews' salvation, they don't use a Jewish word, 
It's not called a Hasuarius festival. They use a Persian word, the word for random lot. Purim is random. Random is dicey. It's, it's a crapshoot, but these chapters teach us a bit about random evangelism. Evangelism. I want you to look at chapter 8 and verse 17 again. What is the net effect of all of this crazy commotion? The Bible says this, and in every province and every city, whenever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. Now listen to this, because most people miss this in the story. And from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. And from the peoples of the country they declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen. What happened? All of this turmoil, all this difficulty, all this slaughter, all this horribleness, and God made people His people in all that brokenness, in all that messiness. God used compromised compromisers, Mordecai and Esther, in their awful situation to build the kingdom of God and bring people in to the people of God. God used this, this terrible situation to proselytize many Persians over multiple of what would be modern day countries on two continents. Uh, to evangelize many people of Ahasuerus. And what is Ahasuerus? He's the great promoter of Zoroastrianism. He's the great hater of other religions. And God uses this and uses His kingdom to be the time when many were brought into understanding the God of the Bible. The miraculous ascension of God's people and the sudden fall of Haman the Horrible got people's attention. There is a God. Nobody could have done that if God wasn't. And they saw that and they wanted to know that God. So what principles can we draw on random evangelism? Purim, random evangelism, the people that came into the kingdom. And that's going to be our final few points here. We're going to go through them quickly. But what can we draw practically? I had to spend a long time unpacking Purim because I think most of us are a little lost on Purim. But now, what do we do with this? And I hope what we do with this is we look at random evangelism. And we look at the different pieces and we say, well, how does that work in my world? And so the first piece I want us to see, number one of your outlines today, is from Esther the heroine of our story. From Esther, we see the need to look beyond ourselves and our own comfort and to look for the welfare of our neighbor that they might find the Savior. Repeatedly, Esther puts her power and position and pomp and wealth and money and everything on the line. She puts her life on the line. Why? Because from Esther, we see the need to look beyond ourselves, beyond our own comfort and security, and to look out for the welfare of our neighbor that they might find the Savior. Are we willing to put ourselves in positions of peril or at the very least to become uncomfortable so other people might hear the Gospel? Very rarely it doesn't cost us our life to share Christ. It costs us a moment of awkwardness. And we're not willing to pay that price. And then we go, why are so few Christians around today? Nobody's telling them how to become a Christian. Nobody's telling them who Jesus is. Do people know you love Jesus? And do they know that that Jesus is worth loving? And if they don't hear it from His ambassadors, where are they going to hear it? Most people are won to Christ, not by evangelists and not by preachers, but by ordinary Christians who live a life of love and truth and grace. And then an opportunity comes, a window, 
And you reach that coworker when they're hurting with the gospel and they come to Christ. That's what the overwhelming statistics have been. You're the greatest missionaries God ever assembled. Do people know you love Jesus? And do they know Jesus is worth loving? Number two, from the battle, from the battle, we see that soul winning is a fight. Soul winning is a fight. Soul winning is a fight. God did not just hand the victory over to them. God's people had to fight for it. They had eight months to prepare, but they had to muster and they had to work together to repel the hands of hell that were coming to kill the people of God. In like manner, friends, if we sit uh, 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 passively, instead of praying fervently and sharing intentionally, let me tell you, we're going to miss the harvest entirely. There's a real battle. There's a real battle. I want you to notice that the second decree from Mordecai's pen on behalf of the king, the second decree did not save them from having to fight, did it? It didn't. It gave them hope in that fight. And that's how it is for us, this side of eternity as Christians, isn't it? God does not promise us there will be no fight. You're going to go to work tomorrow and these people won't be there with you. But those people, your mission field, are there. And there'll be some Hamans there. And there'll be opportunities to put your career in jeopardy or to feel awkward about Jesus. The second decree didn't save them from the fight. It gave them hope in the fight. God never promises there'll be no fight. He promised He'll never leave us as we fight. You know, the Scriptures call us the army of God. Is that how you describe the modern church? Organized, galvanized, systematized, ready, willing, eager to defeat what Satan puts before us. Number three, from the horsemen. There's a little character in the story. We're going to see something. From the horsemen, we see the need for urgency and for organization. From these horsemen, we see the need for urgency and organization. Listen again to chapter 8 and verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivian, the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the officials, the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Now, that's great. Here's this message that will rescue the perishing that will save people who will die if they do not hear it. From certain death. And the problem is, how do you get it out all the way from Ethiopia to India? How do you get it out to 127 different constituencies? How do you get it out to so many different languages and people groups over two continents? They have no internet. They have no television. They have no telegram. They have no telephone. They have no telegraph. But they did. How did they do that? Well, the king's couriers found out, uh, were fanned out. They were sent out. They went in all directions. The Persians had something like the Pony Express. Uh, they had a system whereby all throughout the empire they had prepositioned skilled riders on very specially bred swift horses and they were strategically placed so you would run to this place with the king's order and then the next guy would take it over and the next guy would take it over and you could get all over the empire lickety-split because they had organized and strategized and they were ready to take the message from the king's lips to the people who were perishing. Let's look at the Bible again. It says, 
He sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Expenses were not spared. The king's word mattered. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. We didn't just send it and tell them once. We put it out there. We got it out there. We kept it out there to be displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, and they rode out hurriedly. They didn't just say, well, I've got great gear. They went and they did it. And they rode with all they had, with what they had, urged by the king's command. Hey, let's endeavor to be obedient and being expedient and sharing the Gospel. Maybe we need to pray that the Lord would give us a burning urgency in sharing Christ with the perishing. Let's endeavor to be organized and, and, and galvanized that the Gospel floods out of Calvary and seeps into Essex Fells and over into Roseland and down in the Caldwells and, and out to Parsippany and Whippany and that it would go from us all the way to Zimbabwe and Ukraine and Lyon and... Cambodia and Kenya and to every tribe and every tongue that God asks us to go and share with. Number four, from the two decrees, we see the reality of our condemnation and the possibility of salvation. The king has issued two decrees. The first one is one that brings death and the second one brings life. And neither decree is ever repealed. The question is, which decree are you under? The old decree we have from God is this. Write it in your Bibles, Ezekiel 18.20. Ezekiel 18.20. This is the unbending, unchanging, uncomfortably true truth of God. The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20. The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. It's the first decree. All sinners will die. But God has also issued a second decree, a countermanding decree, and it's in Romans 8 and verse 8. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There are two laws. The law of Christ and grace. The law of sin and death. Those are the two options. You fall under one of these two options. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. And in order that in the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. There is a second edict in Jesus Christ. Death has set down. It set down at Calvary and it laid on the shoulders of the one who didn't deserve it and the only one who could defeat it. But which decree are you living under? Romans 6.23. You might want to write that in your Bible. If you wanted to say in one verse, where are the two decrees of God that are, that are over my life, which one of these is true for me? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Every single person who's been born, we've been conceived in our mother's womb in sin. And so the wages of sin is death. Do you know what the statistics on death are? One out of one. There's a couple of exceptions that ascended, but we're going to throw them out of the equation because they were special. But pretty much if you look around, you see a room full of waiting-to-die people. For the wages of sin is death. Now here's the rest of the verse. Second decree. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Not our fire insurance. Not our religion on Sunday. Our Lord. When you make Him God of your life, that new God protects you from the first decree that's coming for you and me. Because it's never been repealed. And it will never be repealed. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. But if you reject mercy, what are you left with, friend? Left with judgment. The critical question today is, am I under the old decree of sin, which leads to death, or am I under the new decree of grace that leads to life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that Your Word has so much to tell us that seemingly random events are Gospel events where a great number of pagan peoples in Persia straddling what is today multiple countries throughout Africa, Asia, and the the Middle East came to know the one true God through Your display of power in an hour that was extremely sad and and tragic and, and it looked like all was lost and yet when everything was lost at just the right time, You sent Your Son. Not for the worthy, but for the guilty. While we were yet sinners, Christ died to redeem the ungodly. And I am ungodly. I'm under the first decree. But I praise You, Lord Jesus, that You've sent a second decree. That You sent that second decree and You sealed it in the blood that flowed from Your brow, from Your sides, from Your hand. Precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. If there's someone here today And you don't want to be under the old decree, which is automatic. You want to be on the new decree, which is theocratic. You can pray with me. God is listening. God hears your heart. It's not a magical prayer. It's the desire of your heart. The Bible says if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is, He's the Messiah, and you're willing to call Him Lord, that is, the new God of your life, He's willing to save you. You shall be saved, Romans 10.9 says. If you would like for that to happen today, you can pray with me right here, right now, and your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I do not want to be under the old decree any longer. And I recognize that you sent your Son because you so love the world, not wanting any to perish. And I ask, Lord, that you would put me under the new decree I ask, Lord Jesus, that You would be my God and my Savior, that You would give me a holy boldness to share Jesus as Your ambassador, that You would work in my life, that I would look more and more like Christ and less and less like the flesh that has put me in a position of bondage. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Amen.